we do turn now to Ephesians chapter 2. Slightly confusing, if you see the outline in the bulletin, you might wonder exactly what I'm doing, and I'll tell you this is what I'm doing. A few weeks ago, not long ago, at the end of July, I preached on Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And because I had preached on that so lately and so recently, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think I'm going to preach there again. I think I'm going to go ahead and say that we've covered that passage. If you do want to go back, it's on the church website. It's on the church YouTube page. You can go and find that if this, to follow along in the series because the message, even though it's not, I wasn't thinking in the lens of rich doctrine, like rich living then. I was thinking in the, in the lens of change. And I preached that sermon about change. And I preached that sermon titled, Life's Biggest Change. But still the word is true and still the word is the same. I would have preached the same sermon with the same focus, with the same emphasis, with the same applications. And what was the application from 1 through 10? You know, it's exactly as I prayed this morning. All of us were dead and worthless before God. There was nothing we had to offer him. But because of Christ, because of what he's done for us to the cross, because of how he raised Jesus, we were made alive in him. We were made alive in Jesus. We were once dead, and now we're alive. And because we're alive, Paul then moves to our text this morning in 11 through 22. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, if you haven't already, and open your Bible there. Our title this morning for the sermon is, He Unifies, He Builds. And today, as we continue to look at those rich blessings that Christ gives and God pours out to people, in particular, we look at today the unifying nature of who God is. And the building nature in which he builds up his church. He takes people of all races, all creeds, all religions, all backgrounds, and he offers them the same hope, the same family, the same name. And he puts them together in unity. And that's just a brief taste of what we'll see this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So read along with me as we see our text this morning. Therefore, remember that you, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh with the law, with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we, have, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This morning as we go before the Lord and go before his word, what's powerful and what's always true is you see Christ everywhere. Christ, he unifies, he builds. He's the chief cornerstone, this, this passage mentions. And what is he, how is he becoming this chief cornerstone? And what's different that Paul's explaining here? Because what's happened here is, again, this is a newer group of believers. And as a matter of fact, some of the, some of the letters that Paul writes, there would have been a lot of Jewish Christians in the, in the congregation. This letter that he writes, it's not likely. It was far away. It was in a place that maybe not many Jews would have spread. So, of course, there might have been some. But primarily, he is writing this letter to a group of people who know very little or nothing about Jewish traditions, Jewish Old Testament, Jewish scripture, Jewish traditions and what they did. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all that drama was not really important to them because they weren't a part of that. They have no context, no framework for some of this. And yet... In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, right here, Paul is going to explain to these Gentile believers basically how they've been included with Jewish believers and how that works. It's actually, it was actually really interesting to me to study this week because what's hard for me as a pastor, it's hard for me because I know the Old Testament. I know things about the Jews. I know things about Israel and their history and their past and their traditions, but these people likely did not. So whenever you read anything about circumcision or you read anything about what, what they used to be and what formerly was and how it used to work, he's trying to explain to them some of these things, maybe for the first time they're hearing them. So for them, the first thing that he explains then is this, You're, you were far off Gentiles. You were far off Gentiles, verses 11 through 12. And part of the proof of them being far off Gentiles was a missing outward symbol. Verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. The Jews... And anyone else in the world before Christ were all very different. Because before Christ, there was one group of God's elect. One chosen people. One chosen race. One group of people out of all of humanity that God chose to work in and through. 
So outside of heritage and other issues, one thing that completely separated those Jews from any other group of people in the world was their circumcision. That completely separated them. Paul's addressing this to the church. They likely knew that. They knew that piece. They might not have known everything. They might not have known, understood all of it. They might not have understood why the Jews even did that. But they did probably know Jewish people. And they probably did know that that was a part of their tradition. And so Paul says to them, You know what? You who are formerly Gentiles, now you're Christians. By birth, you were called the uncircumcised. By those who called themselves the circumcision. The Jews... We're very proud about this. Oftentimes too proud about this. They wore it as an arrogant symbol. The Gentile believers that Paul addressed, he was letting them know this is a part of what they were doing. But the issue of circumcision in the Old Testament was never intended by God as a tool to bring other people down. However, that's exactly what it became. That's exactly what they used it for. Of course, sinful fallen people use good gifts that God gave them and use it for the wrong thing. It's no surprise. It's no surprise. But really what God intended that for, to, for it to be was a marker of who was his own. It was supposed to be, circumcision was supposed to be this marker. This is a someone who is God's own people. Who is God's own? Well, King David. He was God's own. But if you read the scripture and you look at the scripture, was, his, was he God's own only because he was circumcised? No, rather because he had a heart for God. A man who was after God's own heart. So really, even in the Old Testament, it had little to do with the circumcision. It had to do with the heart. Where is your heart? Are you a man after God's own heart? Are you coming and pursuing a relationship with God? But it still was an outward symbol of obedience. And the Gentiles, the Gentiles, Paul's explaining to them here, you would have had neither of these. You didn't have the outward symbol of circumcision and you didn't have the inward relationship with God in your heart because you knew nothing about him. And, and look at that note, that cliff note in, the, in parentheses in my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours. Look down at verse 11. Which is done in the body by human hands. Paul gives a very clear reminder. This is, this is nothing. This is nothing. He worried that possibly someone might come and tell them, well, you've never been circumcised, and so you're not really a, a Christian you're not really having a relationship with God. You're not really a, a believer. And so Paul, he points out to them, this is done by human hands in the body. This has nothing to do with who you are spiritually. He warns them. And then the next thing that he, he mentions to them, though, however, is that this missing outward symbol, even though it has nothing to do with salvation, it does prove... That from the Old Testament perspective with God's promises, it, it was separation. It did mean separation for them. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time, at that time, 
when circumcision was a big deal. At that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. It wasn't just about their externals, but it was due to their internals. What does Paul say they were? They're separated from Christ. They're without citizenship. They're without the covenant promises that the Israelites had. They were without hope. And they were without God. Some of those things, if you take a look at, they would have had no hope of the Messiah because they would have known nothing about him. They would have had no hope then of being the people of God because they didn't have a relationship with God. They would have had no hope in any of the future blessings that God would give to the Israelites or to the church because they weren't a part of that family. And any hope that they might have had. See, he, he calls them. He says, in that time, you were without hope, period. Why does he say that? Because any hope that they would have had would have been false. Because it would have been hope in a false God or a false religion or a false system. And they had no one to turn to. He says, you were without hope and you were without God. They had no God. They had no one to turn to and already in a difficult life and in difficult times. They had no one to turn to. So this would have naturally, and it did naturally for the Jews, it created a, spirit, a social and a spiritual boundary between Jews and Gentiles. And you can even look at that. It wasn't just with Jews and Gentiles, but think about the story with the Good Samaritan. Even the Samaritans, who were still technically Jewish, it created boundaries because of, of disagreements. These people were set up with boundaries. They had established this faith where they, they set up as many boundaries and walls and it was hard to break into. And Paul's reminding the Gentiles, you know what? At one time, you were far off, Gentiles. You were. You were far off. That's true. If someone comes to you, this is why he's teaching this to them. If someone comes to you and says to you, you were far off, don't immediately get offended. Because you were. But also, what comes next is, but don't let them tell you either that you are second class, that you're less than anybody else, and here's why. Now, pause. Of course, we're all far off Gentiles, but here's the real truth of that, of that statement. Many of you have been in church for a long time. Many of you have known believers for a long time. You know people's story in your life. Sometimes the church is really bad at making people feel like they're far off Gentiles. Christians are bad at this. Still to this day. At coming to people and saying, well, you don't go to church and you don't do the right things and you drink and you do drugs and you have all these problems and you have all these sins in your life. I'm not really sure if you would fit in if you came. I'm not really sure... If you belong where I belong, I'm not really sure if, if that's going to work out. 
And people are harmed by that. Deeply. Because Christians, acting like they represent God, they go to people and say, you're far off. <laughs> you're lost. You're hope. You're without hope. You don't have God. You don't have a relationship with them. You have nothing. And sometimes they leave it at that. Right there. Horrible witnessing. Horrible testimony. Horrible evangelism. Horrible way to try to convince someone. Yeah, you're far off. Well, you know what? The Gentiles, they were far off too. And Paul says to them, you were far off. You were. I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm not going to lie to people in the world. You're far off from Christ. However... What does Christ do? He united the Jews and Gentiles. Take a look at the rest of this passage then really. Almost the rest. 13 through 17. Specifically in two areas Paul addresses this union then. Two areas of two ways. The first way is this. They're given present slash future peace and unity. Present and future peace and unity. Verse 13. But now, but now, that was before, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The first point in given unit, present and future peace and unity, the first thing that Paul points out that happens to the Gentiles is the Gentiles were brought near. Verse 13, you were far away, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We could pause here. Verse 13 could be a whole sermon in itself about how the fact that God takes faraway people, he uses the blood of Christ, and he brings them near to himself. This is a room full of people, though, where most of you understand that. You realize what Christ has done for you through his blood is amazing. It's powerful, and it's a beautiful hope. Because you were once far away, but now you're near. And that's the encouragement he's giving to them. He said, you know what? When this comes, if someone tries to come and tell you, you're far off, and you were, but guess what? Now you're brought near. Now you've been brought near. Again, salvation. It's no merit of their own. It has nothing to do with what they've done, but it has everything to do with Christ and his blood and what he's done. So then look what happens next to these Gentile believers that Paul wants to remind them of. The walls of laws are broken to bring peace. Walls of laws broken to bring peace. 14 through 17, it's all this metaphor language. It's all this language about walls and hostility and divisions and, and how 
they've been now broken to bring peace. How could we, how could I preach a sermon then about this without taking a look at this picture? This is a picture of the Berlin Wall. And this is the most powerful and accurate description and, per, and perspective on this verse that we've ever probably seen in human history. One of the greatest. Because see what had happened was, in case you forgot history like I sometimes do, Free West Berlin and Communist East Berlin were separated from each other by, by a huge, enormous wall with gates and guards and pain and suffering and death for those who tried to escape East Berlin. For nearly 30 years, for nearly 30 years, they were separated. That wall was in the middle of Berlin and Germany and it separa separated those who were free from those who were in communist regime. It separated family from each other it separated friends and loved ones from each other, and it forbid them from going to the other side. And so then, in his bold statement, this actually, this is one of those moments, I knew about the Berlin Wall, I knew I wanted to share it because of what happens and the story that took place. I didn't ever realize this, maybe some of you won't either, but uh, Ronald Reagan actually made his statement bef long before the walls were torn down. I always just had this picture in history class. Maybe I had a bad history teacher in high school. I don't know. Of him standing there like the day the walls were going to come down and saying this. But it wasn't. It was a few years before that Ronald Reagan made a bold statement that this wall was a symbol of separation. And so he came and he stood at the wall and he said, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace... If you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that was, this, that was eventually then what exactly happened. The Soviet Union, together with West Berlin, free West Berlin, they tore down this wall. And 30 years of hostility, 30 years of anger, 30 years of emotions, 30 years of pain and suffering, 30 years of wrongful deaths, wrongful imprisonment, 30 years of bad human history came to a collapse and a conclusion. And the pictures and the stories of the celebrations and the reunions and the parties that happened on that day are immense. But what I didn't realize either in studying for this passage and I found is that they're, they're actually, I should have known, but there was actually a wall similar to this in Jerusalem at the temple. There were multiple walls, multiple layers in the temple. But one specifically was a, a wall that divided the Gentile areas from the Jewish areas. So when you first came into the temple courtyard, the Gentiles could enter, they could acknowledge God, they could worship him there at the temple, but they were only allowed in this one part. And the rest of the temple was for Jewish people only. There was a literal wall separating them. And they didn't have access to everything. 
So Paul, he, he mentions this. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of, his, of hostility. I think it has a double meaning. I think Paul was literally referencing to them because they might have heard about that temple. They might have heard about that courtyard that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. They might have built up some righteous anger towards Jewish Christians because they said, you know what? They had a temple, and when they had a temple, they wouldn't let us in. We were only allowed certain areas. I think Paul has a double meaning here. You know what? That wall has been torn down. The wall separating you from the Jewish people, from the Jewish history, from the Jewish traditions, that wall is torn down. Not only is that wall torn down, but because of Christ is our peace, the wall between you and him, it's been torn down. The wall is torn down. And what was the one clear wall that needed to come down? It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't this wall in the Jerusalem temple that they could ceremonially, after the fact, tear it down in their minds. It wasn't that. The one thing, actually, that, that Paul references was separating them. One of the big things separating them is found in the verses. Read verse 14 with me and continue. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of his hostility, by setting aside... In his flesh, flesh through Jesus, through his blood on the cross, he set aside what? The law. He set aside the law. The law with its commands and regulations. And why did he do that? His purpose was to create in himself, not in the law, not in the regulations, but in himself, one new humanity out of two people with the result of peace. So Jesus' goal then, he teaches, it wasn't just to create, to, to get rid of the wall so the Gentiles could enter in. Instead, he also had to get rid of the wall, the law, so the, Gen the Jewish believers would realize we don't do that old system anymore. There needed to be a wall that came down in their life. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they had heavy whips and heavy rules and heavy customs for the Jew Jewish people. Things that Jesus Christ never intended for there to be. And those Jewish people, they used those laws, they used that to separate themselves from the Gentiles. And you know what Jesus came? He came to put to death the law. He came to put to death all those rules, all those regulations, all those issues. He says, you know what? The Jewish belief is new. It's through me and through my blood on the cross. And the Gentile belief is new. You don't have to worry about all those laws and regulations. What you have to worry about is, do I have Jesus as my Savior? Do I trust him? Do I know the blood covers my sin? It's for both. And that's why he's implying here that thus Christ made peace. Because in him, verse 16, in one body, he reconciled both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers to God by the cross. Because it was at the cross he put to death their hostility. 
He came and he preached peace to those who were far away, the Gentiles, but he needed to preach peace to the Jews too. They needed it. Both. He came to preach to both. Those who were far and those who were near. Most of Jesus' earthly ministry was dealing with the Jews. Preaching the new truth to them. So Paul is teaching them here in, in Ephesians 2 in these verses. This new truth is as much for the Jew as it is for you. How can either group claim it? Neither of you can. The only thing you can do is come together and have peace about it. Because this truth of the cross is for you as much as it is for them. They both needed reconciled to God. They both needed him. And both of them, just like in East and West Berlin, both groups needed the walls torn down. The walls to come down. So then what happens? That's the first bit. That's the first bit of how they've been given present and future peace and unity. Because the first thing that happens is that Paul's referencing, you've been given peace through the cross. You've been given this peace through the cross. The second thing is, the second thing is that they've been built up By the Spirit and the church. They've been built up by the Spirit and the church. And the way we see that first is by being given access to the Spirit. Verse 18. For through him, him being Jesus Christ, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Both groups now have access to God. The Jews, they didn't have access to God before. The Gentiles certainly didn't have access to God before. They couldn't pray and talk directly to Jesus. They couldn't pray and talk directly to their Heavenly Father. They had to go through the temple in the Jewish system. Now you can. Now through one spirit. What, what unifies them more than anything? You have one spirit. Whereby which both of you can come. And have access to God. You know what's beautiful about verse 18? Again, you don't always see it. You don't always catch it. All three parts of the Trinity are at work here together. Verse 18. Through him, Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. All three parts of the Trinity working together to do one thing. Unify us. Unify. To give peace. To put those believers together in peace. So that way they've been given access to the same spirit. The same spirit. And the next thing we see in the other part of this section 19 through 21 is that they're being built on God's cornerstone. They're being built up by the spirit in the church, and they're being built for that on God's cornerstone, 19 through 21. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief 
cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. When I was a kid, there were two toys that I really loved and still do, actually. I mean, I love playing with them. I don't get to play with them very much, but the first one is Lincoln Logs. I had Lincoln Logs at home, and many of you know me. Um, art, crafts, those things are not my specialty. So it's amazing that this is one of my favorite toys because, you know, like I had a best friend who could build, like, make this whole stage into some Lincoln Log creation, you know, and I'm just happy to do the same little square building every time, <laughs> you know. I'm like, man, my square building looks good today. <laughs> just turn it a little bit so it looks a little like more like a rectangle building today. Yeah, that's good. I could only do the same thing. I don't know why, but I love doing that. I love building the Lincoln Log castles and towers and the things that I could build and they weren't impressive, but I love to use them. And then the other thing that I loved playing with at church, they, I didn't have these at home, but the church had them. And so as a kid and then as an adult helper or teen helper or an older kid a helper in the preschool and, and twos and threes and kindergarten rooms at our church, they had these type of blocks. Okay, and we had one, when I, was, when I was a kid in church, children's church, this is a note to you, for you helping with kids, just so you know, they would build, like, they would build a house, and you could go into it, you know, and like sneak through there and, and go through. That was awesome. So I loved playing with those. And again, not every Sunday would they set them up, and so sometimes I'd be on the floor and building things that other kids could build way better, but I still loved playing with them. And Paul, you know what? He uses an analogy from building. Because it's something that we all understand. Every person. Every single one of us in our lives, when you go to start a building project, you're going to start somewhere. Construction guys, people who have done heavy equipment in their lives, they know that one of the most important things you can start with is that foundation. Where's your foundation going to be? What's it going to look like? How's it going to work to make the rest of the house that you're building work? I went to a conference one time where it was like all these guys, and basically they were engineers for foundations of giant mega buildings or bridges. They weren't concerned about the rest of the building. Their job was to establish the foundation. How can we make the foundation work for the project, the rest of the project we want to do? There was a whole group of engineers. I mean, a thousand guys were at this conference, probably, from all over the United States and the world, to get the foundation right. Paul says, you know what's our foundation? It's that our foundation is the chief cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself. That's where all the rest of this comes from. That's where all the rest of faith, that's where all the rest of your relationship with God, everything is built first on him. Jesus is the cornerstone. I, I put this quote up. In ancient building practices, the chief cornerstone was carefully placed. It was crucial because the entire building was lined up with it. The church's foundation that is, the apostles and the prophets, needed to be correctly aligned with Christ. 
All other believers are built on that foundation, measuring their lives with Christ. As we line up, as we stack ourselves on the tower, he's reminding us, you know what? Where do you line up to? It's not to Jews and their customs and their religions. It's not to the way things used to be and how you used to live your life and how things in the past, however you might have gotten help in the past. That's not where you line your life up with. Where you line your life up with now is with Christ. Because verse 19, you are no longer foreigners. You're citizens with God. You're members of his house. You are built on the foundation that, that yes, the apostles and prophets helped to get there, but Christ himself is the main foundation. And the whole building, as it rises, it rises for one purpose. It's joined together to be a holy temple in the Lord. So that's the, that's the last key. That's the last thing that unites the Jews and Gentiles. The last thing is that the church, it was for the church to be God's temple. The second half of verse 21. And it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Not only are we being built, the, the Bible teaches elsewhere, that we're a, part, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. We've even seen that in Ephesians as, as we've studied the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Not only does it dwell inside of you and change the way you live and change the way you act and change the things that you do, but because of that, because we all have this Holy Spirit, we then all are being built. Not just individually, but corporately as a church. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 5 explain. As you come to him... Jesus, the living stone, which was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So as you come to Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament Jewish believers, they never had anything quite like this. They never had this unity. As a matter of fact, when we started the sermon and we talk about that first half, they had disunity. They pushed others away. They pushed the outside people to the fringes. They said, you're not allowed to be where we're allowed to be. But Christ turns that upside down on its head. And he says, you know what? One thing unifies all people, if they're willing to. A relationship with me. Once you have that relationship with me, we are all being built as precious stones together. We're all going back to that block and on this tower. We're all a piece of this tower. Maybe not this one because it's ugly and it's not lined up well. Oh wait, sometimes we're ugly. Sometimes we're not lined up 
well. But well, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing, no matter who we are, we have other brothers and sisters in Christ who are built with us together. Corporately, we're one body. We've been given unity through Christ. And what's the big problem? I mentioned it early. I mentioned it now. The big problem was Paul's warning here. I almost think this is prophetic. Paul to this early church says, you could have people who come and side drail you by telling you you're far off. But you're not far off. You're not far off. As a matter of fact, the same thing that gives the Jews faith is what the same thing that gives you faith in me, that builds you all together, that gives you this unity, that makes you all to be the temple of God. Jesus. You can't preach the Bible, you can't preach and teach God's word without realizing that the central point of every single passage that we see is Jesus Christ. What he's done for us. And what he's done for us has made a difference. And so then he calls us to do something. What to do with what he does. What should we do? I'll tell you the first thing. We need to go around. We need to preach to people. You're far off. You are far off. But not preach to them you're far off like the Jews did and say you're far off, you're worthless and we don't want you. But to preach and say you are so far off from God, you are so far off from a relationship with him. But there's good news. The only thing different between you and me, the only thing different between some of the worst people in the world in human history is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Because the moment you accept salvation, you have these rich blessings that we've been looking at in Ephesians. That moment you accept Christ as your Savior and you come to him on your knees and you say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you with my life. That moment, he all of a sudden takes someone who is far off and had no hope and gives them hope. He takes someone who is far off and worthless and needing judged before his sight, and he offers them forgiveness. So we preach, you are far off, but you know what happens? Once you accept Jesus Christ, you're brought near. You're brought near to this promise. There is no aliens in the church. There's no foreigners in the church. There's no one where if they say, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, there's no second-class citizens for Jesus. We're all on the same playing field. We're all together on the same team. We're all being built together in peace and unity for Christ. That's one of the most beautiful things. You know why? Because on your worst day, you need encouragement. You're not far off. You're near to Christ. And on your absolute best days, when you feel really good about your faith in the Lord Jesus, you remember, you know what? I've been brought near to Christ from this gift. It's all of him. It's all about that cornerstone and what he's done for me. He's brought me near. The question left is this. He unifies by bringing far off Gentiles and taking the Jews and he brings them all together. He tore down the Old Testament laws 
and he offers his blood to make peace. What do we do then? We embrace him. And we embrace that peace. Some of you need to embrace Jesus Christ for the first time. Some of you need to not leave this room before you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Because you were far off. And what you've done is far off from what Christ offers. But he offers hope through his blood. Some of us have accepted that hope. And we need that reminder that this is what happens. We find our identity in Christ. Embrace unity with one another. Pursue peace and reconciliation in your life. And honor the church as the temple of God. I think Paul puts this beautifully. You know what? What's a church family? A church family is a group of people who all at one time were far off. Sinful, worthless, ruined, wretched. But thanks to the cross of Jesus, we've been brought near. And we're a family of Christ, united by our chief cornerstone. Bow in a word of prayer with me. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you that we were all far off. Some of us are still far off, Lord. We need your help. We need salvation. You've given it as a free gift. I pray someone here this morning, Lord, would accept that free gift of salvation by praying to you and saying, Lord, I believe you really did die for me. I believe your blood really does cover me. Help me to trust in you, to accept you as my king, to follow you every day of my life. And God, help your church then. We're your church. Help us to walk in unity. Help us to walk in strength. Help us to be thankful for the fact that you didn't leave us far off like you could have. You brought us near. You love us. And you pour rich blessings that only you can give. Help us this week to remember that you unite us. You are, you are what brings us all together. You are what gives us the common hope. Our church family is strong because we all love Jesus. Our church family can endure pain. It can endure suffering. It can endure hardship because we all love Jesus. You unify us. You bring us together in the church. May we address that, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds. May you help us to leave here knowing how good you are, the way you bring peace to our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.